Good morning. It's Captain Roger from the Salvation Army's Grass Valley Corps here in beautiful Grass Valley, California. And I'm so grateful that you all could join us here online. It is Resurrection Sunday, or as uh, most people refer to it, Easter Sunday. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But first, I wanted to start with a little story that might seem like an unusual thing to talk about here in the middle of the springtime, but uh, it's summer camp. Now, I spent probably way too many summers as a camp counselor uh, and to get kids to settle down at night I would promise them that they could stay up as late as they wanted to on the last night if they behaved all of the week of camp leading up to that and then on the last night each week I started by having them all get into their bunks and I would tell them a story with a magical ending it was a good story but I would draw it out. In fact, sometimes I would draw it out as long as 45 minutes or more until every kid fell asleep. Pretty much and no kids in my cabin ever heard the ending. There were one or two who would make it, but uh, for the most part, none of them ever heard how this story turned out. Now, so you can understand how great this was. I'm going to tell you that story, but in a much shorter way so that you can hear the ending. Now, one day, not so long ago, but long enough, there was a boy born with a golden screw in his navel. That's right, a golden screw in his navel. When he was a baby, his umbilical cord fell off, and there it was, just gleaming, a flathead screw with just the head sticking up like a belly button made from hard metal. And doctors poked and prodded and tested and decided that it wasn't a problem. And they were going to get rid of it, but you know, surgery on an infant always carried risk, so they left it. And the boy grew up with this odd protrusion sticking out of his belly. Now, never really caused a problem. As a kid, he kept his shirt on so others wouldn't see, because he didn't want to be teased, but usually he didn't think too much about it. It was just sort of there. And as a teen, the doctors asked him about removing it, but it was part of him, and the thought of losing it bothered him. So he said, no. But he was curious. Why did he have this? Who else had this sort of thing? And it kind of began a lifelong quest for answers. He studied biology and medicine, looking for other examples of this, but he never found any. He became a doctor who specialized in unusual growths, and he spent every spare moment researching medical libraries and freak shows and cryptozoology journals, pretty much any source he could think of that might have answers for him, but he never found any. Thirty years passed, and he decided to retire. Western medicine had failed him. He began to research other traditions, traveling around the world as he looked for any other example of his unique problem. He studied with Chinese herbalists and looked into Ayurveda in India. He examined tribal medicine from North and South America and from Africa as well, and eventually he realized he was getting old, and he thought that he really only had one last route to pursue and probably only one last world trekking adventure in him before he needed to give it a rest and acknowledge that he would never know why there was a golden screw where his navel should be. So he delved into the supernatural, studying legends, superstitions, and plain out crazy. He studied demonology and foreign gods and looked into natural and unnatural spirits, but nothing. At long last, he found a single reference, not to his problems specifically, but to problems like his. He found a rumor of a place where answers might be.
a monastery high in the forbidden mountains of a forbidden land said to contain the wisdom of libraries from the dawn of time until now collected by a shadowy group who secretly steered the power brokers of the world like some kind of illuminati so the man pulled in every favor he could. He pulled every string. He reminded many people in high and dark places of services he had done for them, solving medical problems for them that no one else would have been able to solve. And in the end, he got permission to enter the Forbidden Mountains and to go to a small, unnamed village at the base of the tallest of them. There he met with elders who told him of a secret trail that would take him high up the mountains to where the monastery lay. Now, when I tell this story at full length, this would usually be the midpoint, and quite frankly, it would have taken us a lot longer to get here than it has today. I will spare us the 15-minute description of the effort that it took for this man to climb to the dark, storm-ravaged peak where the Charter House stood. Let me simply say that at long last, this aging, learned man stood before the giant oak door that opened into a gray stone block structure, and he knocked. Now the door swung open noiselessly, and a silent monk met him. The doctor tried to explain why he was there, but the monk only shrugged and directed him to a room at the end of a long hallway. Inside, there was a feast laid out on, side, on a, a sideboard, and a small cushioned bed with warm blankets. There was also a basin of warm water and a few towels, and the man ate and cleaned up from his journey, and then fell asleep in a deep and exhausted slumber. On waking, he found his clothing was gone, but there was a simple robe that he could pull around himself and belt closed. But before he put it on, he spent a few minutes looking at the head of the golden screw, which had become his lifelong companion and inspiration, and wondered if perhaps today, today might be the day that he would understand what it was. A knock signaled the arrival of another silent monk. This one led him through a maze of halls and out to a bright green courtyard where the sun shone much more warmly than he would have thought possible at this high altitude. The monk pointed him to a bench and indicated that he should recline there, and so he did. After the silent guide had departed, the man waited for what seemed like hours. He remained patient, however, knowing he had made many people wait for him over the years as they sought out his wisdom and expertise. It seemed fitting to him that he should be the one waiting now. And then a remarkable thing happened. Clouds rolled in like curtains being pulled across the sky until only a narrow band of golden sunlight remained, shining down on the doctor lying on the bench. Then there was something between him and the sun, but it wasn't blocking the light. What, what was it? What could that be? It came closer and closer, and he realized that it was a hand. A hand holding something. Closer still it drew, and at last he could make out what it was. It was a, a screwdriver. It was a giant golden screwdriver being slowly lowered towards the man who suddenly felt the need to part his robe so that the gleaming golden head in his navel would be exposed to the matching driver, which clicked expertly into it. Then the hand began to twist, rotating that golden screw once, twice, a dozen times or more. It didn't hurt. He felt nothing as what appeared to be about a four-inch long bolt pushed up out of his body and tipped over onto his belly. No pain, no blood, no sensation at all. The hand turned the screwdriver aside so as not to jab the man in the ribs as it reached down 
and clutched the now loose screw, and then it, the hand, the driver, and the screw all pulled back up into the sky. The clouds suddenly rolled away, and the man was alone in the courtyard with the sun shining again. <laughs> he was angry at first. This was not the answer he'd been looking for all those years, and now this thing which had been part of him, the center of him, it was, it was just gone? How could that be? But then, then he was hit by this sense of, of freedom. It was gone. This thing that had driven him his whole life had been removed. He was released. He could go on and do something normal. He no longer was bound by this tiny piece of him that had prevented anything else from ever having meaning or value to him. Excited at the prospect of living out his last years in peace, he sat up and he pulled his robe closed and then he stood up to go. And that's when his butt fell off. Aren't you glad I told the short version of this story? I bet you didn't expect that ending, though, did you? Do you know what else no one expected? The resurrection of Jesus. Jesus wasn't only brought back to life in impossible circumstances. He was resurrected. He's the first to be reborn from the dead, and he is alive, calling us to join him in the life that we live now and in the life to come. Let me show you what I mean that no one expected this. First of all, no one at all expected Jesus to return from death. Because when someone's dead, they're dead, right? That's it. No more. That's done. There was a story in Reader's Digest a few years back about a cat who got hit by a car and killed. The family kept the cat's death from their four-year-old because they didn't want him to get upset. But after a few days, the little boy asked his mother about the cat, and she was thrown for a moment. But she'd had a couple of days to think up an answer, so she said, Well, son, the cat died, but it's okay because he's up in heaven with God. And the boy got a very confused look on his face, and he said, What would God want with a dead cat? Because dead is dead, right? And when someone is dead, we don't expect to hear back from them. Let's look at what some of Jesus' closest friends were doing after he'd been nailed to that cross. Look at John chapter 19. I'm going to start at verse 25. John 19, 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took care of her into his home. Sorry. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Yeah, he did take care of her, but, you know, that's part of taking her into his home. Anyway, what's happening here? Oh, Jesus is making sure someone's going to take care of his mom. Why? because he'll be dead in an hour or so. And dead people make poor caretakers. So he gives her a replacement son in his friend, and he gives that friend the obligation of caring for his mother. This is an arrangement that neither of them would have accepted if it wasn't for their knowledge that Jesus was about to be dead. And we're told from that time on, she lived in that disciple's home. A couple of verses later, a couple of hours had passed. The soldiers checked the guys nailed to the crosses because they wanted them to die in time for people to get to the Passover parties that would start at sundown. So the soldiers thought they would just break the legs of any survivors so they wouldn't be able to support themselves enough to get a full breath anymore. 
Crucified people died a lot faster that way, usually within minutes. But, back in uh, John 19, look at verse 33, it says, But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. See, the soldiers, they needed to be certain that anyone who was crucified stayed that way until they were dead. And a spear through the heart was an efficient method of checking. If Jesus hadn't been dead already, that probably would have done it. And because he was dead, Jesus' friends were willing to do this. Look down to verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Hmm. That's a lot, isn't it? So they took the dead body. And they wrapped it up in grave clothes and spices that uh, were designed to hasten the decay and keep the smell down. 75 pounds, that's a lot of spices. This is not something you would do to someone you thought was going to walk out of the grave, both because of the cost and the effect. If you were wrapped up like this while you were alive, it would kill you. And then... Once they had him wrapped up, they sealed the body into the tomb. Again, this is not something you do to the living. Not everyone knew that these men had done this, however. Some of Jesus' followers thought that they might have just dumped his body in a hole, so they made plans of their own, which they followed through on that first Sunday morning after he's been killed. This is uh, Mark 16, verses 1 through 3. When the Sabbath was over... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? See, now these women, they're not on their way to celebrate new life, are they? See, none of these things are things that you do for someone you expect to be returned to life. These are things you do for someone who is dead and gone. No one, not even Jesus' closest followers, expected he would be resurrected in the way that he was. Since no one expected Jesus to be resurrected, it only makes sense that they went to the tomb. No one expected the tomb to be empty. You, you know what I love? I love treasure hunting TV shows. I watch all kinds of treasure hunting TV shows. It, there was this one a couple of years back called Snake Island, Treasure Quest Snake Island, where, where people were in search of this long lost treasure, gold, gems, that kind of thing. And they had these old maps and evidence that people in the past had been looking in the wrong spot. And there was this big buildup as episode after episode. It became clearer and clearer that these guys had actually solved the mysteries around where the treasure was hidden and who had hidden it. And as we came to the last episode of that first season, they had just decoded the last few worn indicators on the rocks of the cave, and they found their way around a hidden ledge which concealed the resting place of the treasure. It was so exciting, thinking about the vast wealth and the uncovered beauty they were about to restore to the world after hundreds of years. But there was nothing there. Nothing but a scrap of a board that looked like someone had broken it away from a chest, probably left behind by whomever found the treasure years before. 
See, we all expected the treasure would be there in that cave, but it wasn't. In the same way, everyone expected to find Jesus in the tomb. He was dead, and this is where he was buried, so that's where his body was going to be, right? But, well, let's not do that yet. Beginning with those women who came to prepare the body for proper internment, it's obvious no one expected that tomb to be empty. Uh, again, this is Mark 16, starting at verse 2. I'm going to repeat a couple of lines here. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Yeah, they were alarmed because some guy they didn't know was alive in there, and the dead body they're looking for is not there. And look what happens when they tell people about it. This is Luke 24, verses 9 through 11. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Nonsense? Why nonsense? Well, why? Because it's crazy. Why would anyone take the body? They just plain didn't believe what the women were telling them. In fact, two of them decided they needed to go check this out for themselves, as men will. We always have to double check the things women tell us, don't we? This is John chapter 20. Look at verse 3. It says, So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. That cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside, and he saw and believed. He believed! He believed! What exactly did he believe? Did he believe Jesus had been resurrected? And yeah, not according to the next verse. Verse 9 says, They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So, he's not believing anything about Jesus rising from the dead. What is he believing? If it's not resurrection he's believing, well, think about what just happened. It had taken a foot race for them to see for themselves the tomb was empty in order for them to believe that the tomb was empty. Why? Because no one expected the tomb to be empty. And even when enough of them had seen evidence of this to believe it, there was something else that none of them expected. Not even one of them expected to see Jesus alive. Not one. Mary Magdalene, she followed the two men back to the tomb. And when they left, she stayed behind. Verse 11 in the same chapter we're in here. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. Why didn't she realize? Well, because Jesus was dead. We don't expect to see the dead hanging around wanting to have a chat. We write horror movies about that kind of thing. 
Mary knows that Jesus is dead, so whatever resemblance this guy might seem to have can't overwhelm her knowledge that Jesus is dead and the dead don't walk around asking why you're crying. Jesus tries to get her attention a second time. Verse 15, he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? But Mary still wasn't getting it. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. So even while he is standing there talking to her, Mary is still so convinced that Jesus is dead, she offers to go get the body and rebury it. She didn't expect to see Jesus alive. And Mary's not the only one who has this problem. This is a problem we all have. In fact, this kind of blindness is documented. It's, it's a scientific phenomenon called confirmation bias, where we only see or interpret information in a way that confirms what we already believe. Robertson Davies says, the eye sees only what the mind is prepared to comprehend. The same difficulty was experienced by many of the people who first saw the resurrected Jesus. First they had to recognize him, and then they needed to be convinced that he was actually alive. Look at Luke 24, verse 13. Luke 24, 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still with their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, and what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. <laughs> Can you imagine being Jesus in this situation? Yeah, <clears throat> Jesus tells them they're being foolish because they're ignoring the evidence of the prophets who had predicted this would all unfold exactly the way that it did. And then he walks them through the scriptures. And they still don't get it. But they do invite him in for dinner. And it's not until he's sharing their bread and he gives thanks to God that they finally are like, wait, it is you. And he vanishes, which just absolutely flips them and sends them running back to the others. Why? Because they didn't expect to see Jesus alive. I've got other examples of this. In fact, there's a lot of them. Let me just share two really quickly. In John chapter 20, Jesus appears to a whole room full of his disciples, but they only believe him after he appears inside of a locked room and shows them the nail holes and the tunnel through his side left by the spear. And even with that whole room full of people telling him that it really happened, one of the apostles who hadn't been there, a guy named Thomas, he said they were all crazy. 
and he wouldn't believe it until he could actually stick his own arm up the hole in Jesus' side. And so they spend a whole week trying to convince him, and he's having none of it. And then Jesus shows up again, and he starts by saying, Hey, Thomas, come on over here. See how you can tickle my ribs from the inside. And only then does Thomas believe. One last one. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 and 17. Oh, I love these verses. Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. See, they didn't expect to see Jesus alive, and so they had trouble wrapping their minds around the fact that he was. And so one by one, group by group, he appeared to many and he showed them that he was alive. They could believe it. And he was able to teach them what it meant for him to be alive, for him to have been resurrected. Or as Luke put it in Acts chapter 1 at verse 3, After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. See, people didn't expect to see Jesus alive, so they didn't. I'm going to repeat that. People didn't expect to see Jesus alive, so they didn't, until it was proved to them. So, what does this mean to us today? Anything? Well, you know, people back in Jesus' day didn't expect him to be resurrected. They didn't expect that the tomb he was buried in would be empty. And they certainly didn't expect to see him alive. No one expected the resurrection of Jesus. But the reality was and is that Jesus is alive. Why is that so hard for people to believe? Well, because it's unexpected. Even after all these years and all the proofs that it's true, it isn't what life on earth has led us to expect. And so we refuse to believe. It's surprising. And we hate surprises. They make us question things that we're certain of. It's easier not to believe, to just live inside of our blindnesses, to only believe the things that we're comfortable with. The problem is that's foolish. It's a willful ignoring of evidence and a rejection of something that we all know to be true, even if we don't want it to be. And that <laughs> truth is that the unexpected happens all the time. So often, in fact, it may be more rational to believe in the unexpected than in the commonplace like the man with the golden screw in his navel. We should expect that when something gets undone, things that might be dear to us might just fall away. Today, on this day when we celebrate the unexpected resurrection of Jesus Christ and the new life that he offers to each of us, I ask that you let go of your expectations. Instead, embrace the pure, simple truth that Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Grace and peace to all of you this week. Remember, wherever you are, wherever you've gone, wherever you've got to, you have nothing to fear because God is already there. Just go with God. Again, grace and peace to each of you this week. See you next time.